I'm Nathan Yondel. I'm a PhD student in English here at UW-Madison and also one of the editors of EdgeFX. And I'm here with four fascinating people. Andy Davey, a PhD candidate in geography. Sarah Dimmick, PhD candidate in literary studies. Lynn Keller, who is the Martha Meyer Rank Bascom Professor of English. And Professor Kathy Middlecamp of the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. And Kathy also holds a joint appointment in the Integrated Liberal Studies Program and is an affiliate of the chemistry department. So today in EdgeFX's first ever podcast, we're gonna talk about simplicity, and in particular simplicity in the context of the contemporary environmental movement. And some of the questions we're gonna um, try to address today are, what is the role of simple language or simple ideas or simplified research? Does simplicity help to convey the environmental problems we face, uh, especially from centers of research like UW-Madison out to the wider public? And in that sense, is simplification strategic? Or does simplicity inevitably lead to reduction, categorization, and even violence? So I suspect we'll find ourselves in the gray areas between these two poles, but let's see what my esteemed panel thinks. <laughs> I want to um, start with Lynn Keller, and then we'll hopefully open this conversation out. Um, Lynn is the ranking scholar of language in the room, and as someone whose work often deals with quite difficult language, namely uh, experimental poetry, how do you think about simplicity in your work, and, and how does that extend to the way you think about it with regard to environmentalism? Well, in my work, uh, simplicity is often associated with simplification, and I think that we need to distinguish the two. Uh, that is, I think simplicity is usually associated with candor, with clarity, with many good things. It is a gift to be simple, hmm. right? Whereas simplification is often, can be a good thing, it can be involved in the process of making something easier to understand and clearer, but it can also be associated with reduction. So that with, for instance, the simplistic as opposed to the simple. So in my own, in my own research, often the more negative simplification comes to the fore when I'm worried about how people uh, simplify concepts, simplify ideas of um, blame and responsibility, of who's seeing people as good guys and bad guys and in simplifying ways. But I think that in the environmental context, things become much more complicated. And that, for instance, if we're thinking about language, by and large, as I've said, simplicity is a virtue. And one of the, it's one that academics, I think, particularly if we seek to be public intellectuals, should aspire to, that we want to avoid jargon, that we want to avoid a pretentious vocabulary, that we don't want to um, seem to be speaking in a way that excludes people. At the same time, precision is a virtue, and the reason one would want to cultivate a sophisticated vocabulary or large vocabulary is in order to make distinctions and in order to communicate subtleties that are often quite important. So um, this is indeed a place where I think we are in a kind of complicated middle, you know, middle ground mm -hmm. of negotiating uh, a positive kind of simplicity that isn't going to be a reductive simplification. Yeah, so parsing the different terms, and as I was writing the introduction for this, I found myself using the different terms in different ways, and 
and realizing that these weren't, this is a forum on simplicity or a round table on simplicity, but simplification, simplicity, um, you know, some of the other words that you were using are, are all have very different connotations uh, depending on the context. Um, Sarah, I know um, you are also a, a student of English and someone, you know, we've talked a bit about um, the poet Mary Oliver and I know that you've mm -hmm. thought quite a bit about her and she's, I believe, the, the best-selling poet in America. She is, yeah. She, Mary Oliver is someone I think about a lot when I think about kind of the paradox of simplicity in environmental writing because... I think when you teach Oliver or when you write about Oliver, you're stuck in this bind because she works with all these ideas that from an academic standpoint are oversimplifications. She's um, a huge proponent of the pastoral and a lot of her work is attractive because of how it's simplified. There's no sense of toxicity in her environments. There's very seldom a sign of human presence. And so it is this sort of simple fantasy. And so I think from a critical reading perspective, this is problematic, especially within environmental literature. But I find for students, she's incredibly attractive. And I, one of the questions I have about simplicity is how it can be problematic from a critical academic standpoint and yet incredibly motivating from an environmental politics standpoint mm -hmm. because I find that students with environmental commitments are really drawn to Oliver. And I'm wondering if sometimes our academic inclinations steer us away from writers who are read in non-academic contexts and do have a very powerful role in shaping environmental thought. Um, and I think Oliver would be maybe the prime example of that. I tracked her sales on the Amazon page and it's fascinating. Like on a daily basis, four or five of the top 100 bestsellers in poetry are Oliver. So she's right below Shakespeare in terms of sales. And obviously sales don't completely indicate readership, but it is a sign. And Shakespeare is notably not simple. <laughs> yes, in yes. almost any capacity. Well, so we also have a geographer and environmental studies chemist interdisciplinarian here. I mean, how does this all, how do some of these considerations about language and maybe as we're pushing us into the question of politics resonate for you, Kathy and, and Andy? He's gesturing to me. <laughs> well, if Lynn is the ranking scholar of language in the room as a chemist, I'm probably the ranking non-scholar of language. I couldn't agree with you more, Lynn, that... Um, to simplify, at least in teaching and learning chemistry and everything connected to it, simplify would be bad. It's non-rigorous, um, it's weak, um, it's for people who um, can't learn it the real way, which would be the, the full amount of rigorous language. That said, the word that you spoke that caught my attention was the word jargon. and. People have said to me that learning chemistry is like learning a foreign language because of all the words and concepts we throw in, and I think I agree with them. There's a corollary to that, that if you can't learn the language, you'll never be a chemist. So how do we get from something that is closer to uh, the question I think you originally posed about environment? 
And to get there, I want to quote somebody, but I don't know who, who said, the world isn't made up of atoms, the world is made up of stories. And when I move from language to story, and that may be like moving to poetry, all of a sudden I have a freedom that feels really important to me. Chemistry doesn't make a good story if it's all jargon. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has to have some kind of a plot, and it has to be intriguing, and it has to reach its audience. So if I were to go anywhere with the simple and the simplicity and the jargon you were talking about, I would say to, to bridge it to the environment, we need to use language, the language of story. It makes me think of uh, Elizabeth Colbert's lecture, and she was just here for the Anthropocene yeah. Slam a few days ago, and one of the things that um, stuck out for me was the way that she would talk about something complex like ocean acidification um, or even climate change, and she would say, all you need to know about this is, and then she would give a kind of precy of what, of what the essential research was and, and kind of just cut through all the yeah. kind of hairy edges around things that, that tend to obfuscate whether or not we can understand something and say, this, this is it. But that's also, some scientists would say, well, it's much more complicated than that. I mean, when, when does that become a kind of simplification to achieve an easy political goal when you say, all you need to know is this? As I'm not to... real fond of the language all you need to mm -hmm. know is, but I'm, <clears throat> I like better. To get started in the conversation, it might be helpful to know that the ocean contains a lot of water. It's really, really important on our planet. It's salt water, and not only that, it absorbs things out of the air. It's a, it just has a different feel to me than saying all you need to know. That almost pats me on the head and I go, ugh. <laughs> Absolutely. Andy? Uh, yeah, this is a really interesting question and concept, and I found myself thinking sort of along three different lines uh, after you posed the idea of this roundtable. And one was certainly about the sort of heart of what you asked about language and, and uh, simple language versus more complex language. And I found myself thinking that, well, in some ways, simplification is just unavoidable. Uh, if we're to focus on anything in our world, we have to kind of eliminate certain things in order to, to even understand or comprehend anything, to experience anything. There's you know, millions of, of sensory experiences sort of flying us all the time, and we have to figure out which ones to focus on and which ones to avoid. So for me, the question isn't whether to simplify or not, but how and when, and to be really conscious and conscientious and cautious about how we do that. Um, so as you posed, you know, when we simplify, is that erasing certain people's stories or erasing their power to uh, increase our own? Or is it a way of connecting with someone uh, who may not know as much as we do about a certain issue? So I think uh, it's a matter of, of how and, and, when, and when, those are the difficult questions. Um, and then the two other ways I found myself thinking about um, simple in terms of the environment was I immediately thought of Wendell Berry. Uh, and I've mm. read several times either in interviews with Wendell Berry or one of his essays where he says, um, you know, often people tell me that I'm part of the living simple movement. And he says, that's a bunch of crap. I, I don't know why people say that about me. Uh, and he says uh, that, you know, uh, so Thoreau has this famous line, simplify, simplify, simplify. And he says, no, complexify, complexify, complexify. <laughs> And I think his point is really about agriculture and about farming. And uh, so he's 
coming from the position of uh, industrial agriculture and arguably modernism writ large, is about simplifying certain things in certain like ways. Like a monocrop of corn, mm -hmm. is that what you're getting at? Exactly, mm -hmm. or for efficiency, or for economic gain. Those are kind of simplifications of a complicated system. And so Wendell Berry is saying, no, if we actually think about how all the ecological pieces fit together, how ecology and culture fit together, it's actually a very complicated system. And only if we're attentive to that complexity uh, can we achieve some kind of uh, ecological responsible way of doing things or sustainability or whatever uh, hairy concept we want to use. The third way I was thinking about it, which relates to that second way, is um, you know simple living or you know so the, the, the phrase you often hear uh, is uh, living simply that others so that others may simply live, which is also linked to a kind of politics of consumption and inequality. Um, and I was trying to track down who said that, and so it's often quoted that Gandhi said it, but then apparently Gandhi might have quoted uh, Elizabeth Seton, an early 19th century American social reformer. It was a little unclear, um, but something I did discover that seems pretty clear is that the phrase voluntary simplicity was coined by a guy named Richard Gregg, who was a kind of philosopher, theorist, activist of the early 20th century, and uh, he, he shows up uh, on most people's radars because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. famously, when he was asked, what five books are you most influenced by? He named two books uh, on Gandhi, uh, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, Walter Rauschenbusch's Social Gospel, and this guy, Richard Gregg, who's nobody's heard of, <laughs> but he coined this term voluntary simplicity. And you can see that sort of, that term and that concepts are tracing through a lot of in the environmental movement throughout the 20th century and sort of thinking about simple living, uh, living simply and sort of anti-consumerism. Uh, and what that means, is that a useful concept? Is that a useful approach? What are the problems with that? Yeah, I think you can also see it tracing through uh, various church groups. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't, that book made a lot of um, inroads in places other than the environmental movement. Yeah, absolutely, and and arguably, you know, I was going to say the Catholic worker community might yeah, be one. One well, and arguably, the friends. You could go the, back to the yeah the early monastics, the early Christians. Yeah. You could go back to Jesus, uh, and so yeah, there's a long I think yeah. history in, in Christianity of, of well, thinking about I think that. many world religions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But ironically, within our culture, moving toward a more simple life is not a, is a, is a complicated process. Right. Very much so. Um, if we're living within the kind of capitalist mm -hmm. growth, being downwardly mobile <laughs> wouldn't be called a good thing. Yeah, but it would. to learn to learn to value that and see it as yeah. you know full of pleasure and and reward, as I say, not going to be a simple process. When I finished college, I spent two years um, living in a community that practiced voluntary simplicity. So um, I was living in D.C. And we had $81 a month for food per person. For me, it was an incredibly complex experience because there is such value in like learning to appreciate what is um, pleasurable about a simple life. And there's also this sense, though, that because it's a voluntary simplicity, it can sometimes edge towards... Um, like, I want to put this carefully, but kind of play-acting poverty, I think, yeah. at a, points. Yeah, a posturing. A posturing. Yeah. And I think the line between voluntary simplicity and posturing is thin and pretty fragile. And you have to do it incredibly intentionally and consciously. 
one way to put it might be to kind of parse this a little that it's you need it to be a way of life as opposed to a lifestyle but this also this whole conversation makes me think about um how simplicity has been kind of co-opted in the in the political world um and that it's now considered a it's a character trait if you are if you speak simply if you kind of comport yourself in a simple way then therefore you must be authentic mm. and that's been used in the surface of different kind of political stances and it, i'm just curious what you all think about the way that when simplicity enters the world of politics what happens what's your experience with that you know one thing i guess it depends on how you define simplicity but it seems to me that if we're concerned about deceptive language mm-hmm. then uh <clears throat> simplicity isn't necessarily what's at issue i don't know if you ever there's a famous uh, Orwell essay called Politics in the English Language, where he talks about essentially euphemism, the ways in which politicians manipulate language with phrases that may well be simple, right, but they still are covering up uh, the underlying political realities. So it seems to me that, that we're back to what Andy talked about in terms of when are you simplifying and with what mm-hmm. intention because simplification may be really a means of clarification. It can equally, equally well be a means of obfuscation. So it doesn't seem to me that if, if, um, if the opposite of simplicity is complexity, uh, you know, complexity too can, can serve both those roles. That is, complexity can be trying to get at a fuller truth, or complexity also can be, be covering a means things of, up. <laughs> of obfuscation. Yeah. Yes. But we do have to be careful the ways in which words get sort of what fossilized i don't know i'm thinking about um sustainability sustainability is a wonderful concept but it's also it raises all sorts of questions that we need to be asking all the time you know sustainable for whom um who decides you know sustainable meaning you know for what what is sustained at what level etc etc uh how do we agree upon it or green or green green gadgetry is a huge industry, right? Uh, you know, and full of consumer, consumer goods that are only increasing the use of resources, not in fact reducing them. Yeah, I, I was thinking uh, to your question about politics and, and political rhetoric. Um, uh, so as someone who does sort of historical geography, I think history is really important here in sort of thinking about the history of American politics. and. Uh, you have this tension, I think, throughout our history in this country between elitism and populism. Yes. And it's there from the start and it runs throughout uh, history. And, you know, you can think about um, the sort of aristocratic gentleman uh, ethic of, of the so-called founding fathers. Um, and, and then you can think about uh, Andrew Jackson and the sort of age of democratic populism. Uh, who was seen as this crazy radical. How could you, why would you be cavorting with the people? Uh, you're supposed to be sort of removed as this, this uh, good Republican politician. Because today we think about like the president, he's got to be out there eating hot dogs on the campaign trail and kissing babies and doing all these things, right? With, with all the, these simple things. Exactly, right? <laughs> Hanging out with the people, right? And, and that's kind of, that's, that's a pretty new phenomenon. So I guess it's it's just interesting to think about um, you know, elitism versus populism. And I think to get more to the point of environmental politics, I think back about progressive conservation and arguably the elitism of, say, the Forest Service or the National Park Service 
where they had these goals of preserving wilderness, arguably for a kind of middle class or, or elite uh, group of urban Easterners, and completely obliterating or ignoring or, or removing working class hunters, working class agriculturalists, Native Americans, places like Yellowstone, the Adirondacks, Grand Canyon, uh, classic work by Carl Jacobi in environmental history about those very things. So I think it, it's, you know, it's sort of, uh, we can deride those, those politicians who sort of want talk about, you know, being populist and out with the people. But I think there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a complex dynamic between elitism and populism and, and, and sorting that out is pretty hard. And I think we have to be really careful about that. And there does seem to be, to kind of work off this, there's, we live in a, to put it very simply, we put it, we live in a very complex world. We live in a world that has, um, that is increasingly interconnected and relational and where um, the effects of what we do kind of refract outwards in ways that are hard to really comprehend and we are made to see that now more. Um, and yet that clearly imposes a kind of weight on people to know that they they can't have sort of their own lives. They can't just do their individual thing without affecting other people. I mean, you go out and buy a t-shirt and you're and you're you're hurting a five-year-old across the world and you didn't want to do that. You just wanted to buy a t-shirt that didn't cost $35. So, you know, there's, there's clearly, um, a societal weight that's happening here and, the, and, and speaking simply and trying to simplify um, uh, the issues is part of a, of a response to that and, a, and a, maybe a coping mechanism but also a comforting mechanism and I think we look potentially to politicians to, to, to bring things down to their kind of core essences and tell us in a sense how we should think, what we should think. Um, but that that brings me to a distinction, maybe you know, going back to Lynn's comment a little while ago about um, uh, you know simplicity versus simplification and so on. And maybe part of what we're driving at, at in this conversation is that the the goal is clarity, as opposed to simplicity or complexity. The goal is a certain kind of clarity that takes into that has a, a simple message behind it, but that is gesturing towards the more complex side of whatever the issue is. You know, that recalls for me what Kathy was saying earlier about her uh, bridling at the idea of this is all you need to know. Because <laughs> it seems to me that there's that underlying a lot of this is the importance of having knowledge that is that is complex in as complex as it needs to be to encompass a uh, situation. And then from there, to you may need to communicate in simple ways, or you may need to develop a simple course of action that's financially feasible or whatever, but you need to be acting with that knowledge behind you. And I think of, um, for instance, you know, um, people, in, people in positions of power who said, plant kudzu, it'll help you with erosion. Right? Um, they clearly weren't thinking in a way that it involved a rich body of knowledge, you know, and having a whole ecosystem in mind, right? They had a simple, they were, they were simplifying. It probably did at, stop erosion. It covered everything in the process. Yeah, so, but it was not a good, you know, it was a solution that generated problems, right? But and, yes, we know, know about those. <laughs> so, but my point is about knowledge, you know, that yeah. had they been thinking in a more comprehensive and complex way, 
And this is only one example of the many things people have been told to plant that turn out to be problematic, right? Uh, you know, turn out to be invasive or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it just seems to me that behind our, even if we need to communicate simply or uh, act in simple ways or choose a simple course of action, that it has to have behind it uh, a kinds of knowledge that are not necessarily yeah. as simple. In listening to you, I think I can say, I love simplicity, but I can also say, I love complexity. Right. I mean, both right. of those look to me as, as useful and have their place, but again, in listening to you, I think I hear you starting a conversation, not ending one. Yeah. And that's whatever kind of language you're using invites further exploration. I mean, speaking or writing, if it's by another human being for another human being that involves both listening and talking and further learning, I can like both simplicity and complexity as long as we're going on the path that keeps going. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot because it gestures towards this idea of relationship. Yeah. And I think for me it seems like one of the synonyms that gets mapped onto simplicity is this idea of autonomy. And there's this idea of how complexity refers more to interrelationships. And it seems like a lot of our contemporary environmental concerns stem from this sense that everything is interrelated, like climate change or um, nuclear storage concerns. It becomes very hard to touch one element of the system without mm -hmm. disrupting everything. And I think that's where we get this sense that complexity is unethical or problematic or concerning and yet if we head towards simplicity I worry if we don't have a sense of relationship then with this idea of the simple life or um, simple words if that somehow eliminates a sense of interrelation then I don't think that's environmentally productive yeah I think this this idea of adding sort of relationship, inclusivity, communicating with another person rather than just talking to the void is really important, sort of adding relation to clarity. Um, so th this is a really great topic for me. I got me reading all this stuff, as you can, as you can see, uh, as you can hear. Um, so I went back, I remember reading this article in this book called Confronting Consumption, and I went back and read this chapter by this guy, Michael Maniotis, who's an environmental studies professor. And he, he did this study of the voluntary simplicity movement. And um, he said, you know, one of the, the critiques is that this is, you know, relatively affluent people who have voluntarily decided to give up a bunch of stuff in their life and kind of think about their own individual consumption beha behaviors and sort of, you know, now I'm going to recycle more, now I'm going to buy organic clothing, whatever. Um, and he said that if you actually look at some of the, the people in the movement, in particular, he wrote about uh, this woman, Cecil Andrews, who wrote a very influential book on um, simple living uh, in the 90s. And her argument was, well, it's not just about consumption, uh, although it is about consumption, but it's also about uh, simplifying our work lives and not being sort of uh, a, a workaholic and not being a sort of slave to our employers where we're working all the time, we've got our Blackberries on, we're at home, we're constantly checking email, but a sort of simplification of what are the things that we really value in life? What does it mean to have a meaningful life? How can I use my time in ways that create a, a healthy life and create healthy relationships and just relationships with other people? And there was some efforts to sort of think about what would it look like to have policies that include 
maternal and paternal leave, flex time, uh, you know, a good vacation package, these sort of big structural social issues that you could link to, to simplicity and a kind of a, a simplification of, of work life. In a way, it's complicating things, right? Because it'd be a more complex schedule in terms of figuring out everyone's calendars. But in another way, it's sort of saying, how do, we, how do we reduce our stress in our life and how can we tie that to this idea of simplicity? And I, I found that really compelling. Thank you all for being part of this with me. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.